everyone. Welcome to the next episode of What's the Story, Old Glory, the podcast that is counting down to the 2024 US presidential election next November from a uniquely Kiwi perspective here in New Zealand. I'm your host, Elizabeth Sol, and with me is my wonderful co-host, Todd Muller. Good morning, everyone, and I uh, hope you've had a good week. And I hope, like you, if you you watched the presidential uh, debate, the Republican presidential debate from uh, the Ronald Reagan uh, Center in California, uh, we did, Elizabeth. And uh, wow, what could you what what could you describe it as? Um, you know, well, I... sound and fury signifying nothing, or something a little bit more than that. Yeah, it was interesting. I, I, as I watched it, I felt like I have to um, plagiarise and deliberately misquote um, former All Black captain Sean Fitzpatrick in that it felt like a debate of three halves. They started off quite dignified and, and presidential in a way, and then it descended into madness, and then they all seemed to get a bit tired at the end. <laughs> Yes, I think that's a very good summary. But uh, I agree with you with the descent uh, to, into madness. Uh, what was your uh, uh, takeaways? Because um, I've got a fair few. Why don't you kick off and give us your sense of it? Yeah, so I uh, was watching it through, as I said in our last episode, through the lens of, of the advice that we were given by Stan Barnes, our wonderful guest, who talked about the fact that uh, some of these candidates know they're not going to win because they're polling so low, but they're trying to develop a brand, develop their name um, for future runs. And I thought that particularly about the likes of Chris Christie and and Mike Pence um, and why they're coming out so strongly, particularly Christie, against Donald Trump when it meets with a chorus of booze from the audience. I want to look at that camera right now and tell you, Donald, I know you're watching. You can't help yourself. I know you're watching. Okay? And you're not here tonight, not because of polls and not because of your indictments. You're not here tonight because you're afraid of being on the stage and defending your record. You're ducking these things. And let me tell you what's going to happen. You keep doing that, no one up here is going to call you Donald Trump anymore. We're going to call you Donald Duck. And I was thinking to myself, maybe he does want to have a run in the future. Maybe he's seeing all the legal woes that Donald Trump is facing, and he's hoping that somehow the Republican Party is going to come crying back to him and say, you were right, we were wrong, you're on the right side of history, you're our man. Um, that, and that's what I thought, because he was, so, he was so strong again about Trump, and he was really trying to differentiate himself from the rest of the um, rest of the debate panel. And this is particularly gov former Governor Chris Christie, right? You know, he, yes. he's put himself into the campaign very much as the anti-Trump uh, candidate. And so you, you're saying that uh, he's, he's not only doing it to try and discredit Trump to the greatest extent possible now, um, he's, he's doing it because he's got one eye on the future and thinks that there might be an opportunity uh, in presidential elections to come. Is that what you're saying? Um, you know, he seems to have had a long career already, but still be having, you know, considerations of what four, eight, 12 years hence could look like. Yeah, and um, he has had a long career. He was um, um, state attorney for New Jersey um, uh, before going into politics. And, and, and they, 
from with the exception of Ramaswamy, they are all mid forties plus. Um, and that's one of the symptoms of US politics at the moment, not just vying for presidency, but but right across the board um, in, in all elected offices, the average age is, is well over 50, if not into 60s, I think. Um, but it's a, it's a sign of US politics. And also thinking about what Stan said, um, it doesn't actually pay that well to be a politician in America unless you're already wealthy. Um, yes. So it, you have to have had an established career behind you to be able to even afford to run. And so yes. it for, makes the age um, demographic attracted to that as a viable career option older and older and older over time, I think. Yes, that's a good uh, insight. So you also mentioned uh, former Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, I would say that he, for me, he was one of the worst performers. You know, he, he struggled to get airtime. Now, every time he tried to get uh, his message across, um, you know, he I felt he wanted to slow the debate down and become more uh, statesman-like. Uh, but in fact, I think he gave the impression of someone whose uh, thinking uh, wasn't quite uh, at the pace of of his speaking, and he just he he came across as incredibly dull. Uh, and uh, for me, at least, looking at him, incredibly low energy. Mm. Uh, I mean, very much burnishing his conservative credentials. I mean, he is never going to be picked by Trump if uh, Trump is the nominee. And, you know, by all accounts, it looks like he is going to be. Um, so you sort of wonder what uh, Pence is doing, right? Because he's mm. already been vice president, high name recognition. But uh, has he really um, got an eye out for 2028, where he has another go? by which stage, you know, he too will be well in his 70s. But, you know, as you said, this is increasingly uh, American politics, uh, particularly the presidency, is, is a job for old men. Mm, there's, and, and women. Um, Diane Feinstein is now in her 90s, I think. Yes, um, And Mitch McConnell, former Speaker of the House. Um, he's being publicised as having some senior moments, if I can put it that way. No offence to our listeners in older age demographics and we're not saying you're not capable but it is it's 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 just a really interesting um it, it's so different from oh, from I, politics in most look, other countries totally my mother's 75 and she wouldn't take offense with what she just said she looks at uh, some of these people and think my god why don't you give it a rest yeah don't, um, don't they just want to hang out with their grandkids you know yeah and play bowls or just do something other than you know in mitch mcconnell's case stare blankly at the screen you yeah. do feel sorry for him um i, I like so, the, um, the, the point you made about um pence trying to be statesmanlike. that's exactly how it appeared it seemed that he had pre-prepared um uh things that he wanted to say and he wanted to say them in a particular way. The one point that I felt was most awkward in the entire debate, and we'll play this for listeners, put this in, was when he tried to make a joke. Because by way of full disclosure, Chris, you mentioned the president's situation. I'm, my wife uh, isn't a member of the teachers union, but I got to admit, I'm I've been sleeping with a teacher for 38 years. Full disclosure. Full disclosure. And it just came across as so creepy. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> totally. Uh, just full disclosure. I've been also <laughs> sleeping with a teacher for 30 years. Oh, my goodness. 
these these guys overshare, if you ask me. But anyway, um, who else do you think walked away from that uh, debate uh, in a lesser position in terms of the public uh, eye than when they walked in? Well, I I thought that Bergen. Um, again, underperformed. He wasn't given many questions. Um, and when he no. did answer questions, he just kept referring back to, to North Dakota, where he's from. Um, mm. But interestingly, I have checked the polls and his, his percentage points went from four to eight from before the debate to after the debate. So, and that's, but that's with Republican um, uh, voters. So he obviously resonated with someone. North Dakota has 770,000 people. Mm. Uh, so North Dakota is half the size of Auckland. Uh, yeah. And it has two senators. And, um, uh, you know, the, as we heard from Stan, you know, yes, last time, uh, full replication, if you like, of the federal government. And so he's been the uh, governor there and talks, I think, quite powerfully about the sorts of initiatives that have been achieved in North Dakota, yeah. but it's suggesting that what you can do in what is, you know, an average size city in a New Zealand context can be applied to all of the United States of America, uh, I, I think, you know, just doesn't really stand scrutiny. But um, you could tell he was quite frustrated. I think he really he found the, uh, the debate style uh, very challenging, particularly not being able to get any questions in around energy. Um, mm. So Doug, so Doug is a bit of a. You and thought Doug didn't perform well, but he yeah, did. Yeah, he really did have a good question about health. He said basically the problem with the U.S. healthcare system was its software. We're not talking about the real problem ever. We talk about why do we have the most expensive health care in the world. It's because the federal government got involved the same way they did with EVs, and they said, we're going to subsidize a particular kind of software back in 2008 under Obama, and they said, hey, we're going to do this. It's going to make everyone more produ productive. All of you that are watching have been to a doctor's office when the doctor's got his back to you and their hands on a keyboard. The, the only industry in the world that's ever absorbed $1 trillion of IT and became less productive, they saw less patients per day, is U.S. healthcare because they were subsidizing a certain kind of technology. It wasn't. It wasn't about improving healthcare. It was about picking winners and losers. Um, and he comes from a tech background. He's run software companies, worked for Microsoft. So I understand why that's his bent. But that just seemed such a bizarre thing to say. To blame to blame yeah. the woes of the health system on software. So your yeah. Winners. So in terms of who I thought did better than expected, um, I have been reading quite a bit about um, Tim Scott. And people have been sort of giving him big ups and saying that he had real potential for the future. And based on the first debate, I just didn't see it. He didn't seem like he had the X factor. But in the first, again, debate of three halves, the first third of it, um, he seemed to really find what he wanted to say. Joe Biden needs to be fired. That's why I'm running for president. I look forward to being the next president of the United States. I will also say, I know America can do for anyone what she's done for me. It's why we're focusing on restoring hope, creating opportunities, and protecting the America we all love. Growing up in a single-parent household, I wondered if the American dream would work for a kid in the inner city. I've got good news for every single child. Whether you're in the inner cities of Chicago or the rural parts of Iowa, America and the dream, it is alive, it is well, and it is healthy. God bless these United States of America. He spoke directly to the camera. He spoke to the people at home. Um, he was passionate. 
and seemed less of an automaton than he did in the first debate. And I just, I, I, I started to see the spark that people have um, seen in him prior to the debate. Yeah, I think that's a very good summary. And I was very impressed with him at the start. I think we have to say sort of at the outset, this uh, the sort of setup here, um, for those who didn't watch it, uh, three uh, questioners, um, there's eight of them, I think, on the stage from memory. Um, and, um, you know, they were to, they were going to ask or intended to ask um, each candidate a question relating to a particular theme. But they just never managed to do that because very quickly in sort of part two of this three-part um, stage show, uh, it just descended into chaos with people talking over each other. Uh, and and then they made this unusual um, uh, change in approach, this is the moderators, when towards the end of the debate, they asked uh, Scott to directly uh, critique uh, uh, former Governor Haley uh, from Great. Mickey Haley. Uh, and so you had this bizarre um, um, in, in, encouragement by the moderators for one candidate to turn to another candidate and outline their deficiencies, their professional deficiencies as a leader. And so what did you think about that? I found that absolutely bizarre. It was the only uh, two uh, candidates that they asked to do that. Essentially the equivalent of what we're seeing right now in a in a, in a Chris Hipkins versus Chris uh, Luxon debate where perhaps uh, Gower would say to both of them, tell each other the bad things about each other for five minutes. I mean, we'd find that slightly unusual in New Zealand. It was particularly unusual in this debate when it was the only two who were asked to do it. They were both gov former governors of, uh, um, or involved with South Carolina. Uh, yes. And, um, well, what did you think of it? I thought it was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. And, and what Scott had, um, jumped on there, was Nikki Haley's performance when she was the ambassador to the United Nations. And there was some sort of controversy um, when she was in that role. And they ended up having an argument, yelling at each other, over each other, about curtains. I would love to finish my conversation with Nikki as it relates to the job that needs to get done. Nikki offered a 10% 10 cent gas tax increase in South Carolina. Talk about someone who has never seen a federal dollar she doesn't like. 10 cents on this gallon in South Carolina as the UN ambassador. You literally Bring it, put $50,000 on curtains <laughs> at a $15 million subsidized location. Secondly, on the uh, curtains, do your yes. homework, Ted, because Obama bought those curtains. Did you send them back? It's in the press. Did you send them back? It's the State Department. Did you send them, Did back? You send them back? You're the one that works in Congress. Oh, oh my gosh. You get it, You done. hung them on your, your, your Um, For me, the winner uh, was uh, DeSantis. And yes. I... Uh, thought he was a poor performer in the first debate. He looked, um, didn't really sort of get his mojo. And I was surprised because he was seen as the great hope against Trump. Uh, and uh, I thought he, he was quite diminished in stature after the first debate. Uh, I really felt he got an opportunity to get some of his um, messages uh, across. 
I mean, you know, obviously when you listen to it from a New Zealand perspective, the language and the and the framing of the exceptionalism of the United States, uh, the binary view of, you know, everything the US touches is brilliant, you know, uh, China and Russia and other countries around the world are, you know, declared enemies. The language is a little bit uh, challenging. Uh, when, when you think of things around the border and military, I mean, DeSantis saying, you know, we back the blue. Uh, he would use military force to go after the Mexicans, but particularly the cartels and those who are trying to uh, facilitate that enormous illegal movement across that border. But uh, I thought he was impressive about keeping on his messages that he wanted to, like he was asked a direct question around Obamacare, he just dodged it and turned it into a fierce critique of the cost of living uh, and a the demonstration of how successful uh, he has been, in his view, uh, in terms of governor of uh, Florida. It's our, our state's a dynamic state. We've got we've got a lot of uh, folks that come. Of course, we've had a population boom. We also don't have uh, a lot of welfare benefits in Florida. You know, we're basically say we want to. This is a field of dreams. You can do well in the state, but we're not going to be like California and have massive numbers of people um, on government programs without work requirements. We believe you work and you got to do that, and so that goes for all the welfare benefits. And you know what? That's done, Stuart. Our unemployment rate is the lowest amongst any big state. We have the highest GDP growth of any big state. And even CNBC, no fan of mine, ranked Florida the number one economy in America. Yeah, that's right. And interestingly, because of the way uh, the moderate, the debate was set up, he was front and centre stage, literally, because he's the highest polling candidate out of those um, on the stage. Um, and, and must say again that not all the candidates were there because they didn't all pass the test. So Asa Hutchinson um, and a couple of others uh, weren't on the stage, but they're now polling under 2%. So, but but no, absolutely agree. Um, I, I think uh, at one point, DeSantis repeated what Christie had said, accusing Trump of shirking his responsibilities, basically, for not being there at the debate and that he needed to be there and, 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 um, and he owed it to, to voters to show up. Um, but after that, he seemed to really find his rhythm, um, and and I thought that 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 he did best out of out of the debate as well, particularly in comparison to um, the first one, where like we I think we said he didn't appear to have an X factor, but he he found it in this debate. And who would be your second place if we're going to give uh, DeSantis um, number one? Who would come in number two for you? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I again, I, I like I say, I thought Scott did really well at first, but he he faded as the debate went on, whereas others started to 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 perform better. Um, and so Haley once again, like I think you said in the last podcast, started to demonstrate that she was the adult in the room. Um, she she yes. hammered home her um, financial acumen. Um, being from an accounting background, um, that was clear. She brought that. She also, again, talked about foreign policy a bit. Um, and at first, Ramaswamy did really well, I think, as well, because he didn't, he wasn't quite so, um, um, didn't come across as so much of a boisterous showman as he did first time around, but he couldn't help himself. And then I felt that he kind of descended into showmanship without a lot of substance and then we had a fantastic exchange between um 
Ramaswamy and Haley, which will play as well, where they had an argument about TikTok. This is infuriating because TikTok is one of the most dangerous social media apps yes, that is. we could have. And what you've got, I honestly, every time I hear you, I feel a little bit dumber for what you say because I can't believe they hear that you've got a TikTok situation. What they're doing is these 150 million people are on TikTok. That means they can get your contacts, they can get your financial information, they can get your emails, they can Let get just text say, messages, they can get all of these things. Very knows important for exactly our party. What they're this doing. is very important for our party, and I'm going to say you've gone and you've we helped China stop. build make medicines in China, not America. Me. Excuse you are me. now wanting kids to go and get on this social media that's dangerous for all of no. us. You and you were in business with the Chinese that gave Hunter Biden five million dollars. We can't trust you. We had a debate about curtains and a debate about TikTok. Yes, it was. Just it was him. absolutely uh, uh, brilliant. Um, uh, Ramaswamy is someone uh, that I am struggling to give a dispassionate assessment to for a Kiwi audience because when I hear him yeah. speak, he makes my skin crawl. You know, it's just, you know, sometimes you hear people like that uh, in politics and you go, oh, blimey, you, you're not my... I'm sure we don't have I'm any sure we don't. On, the, on our no, election. No, New Zealand's, New Zealand's not, like, not like this at all. But um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, I just find him, uh, you know, sure of himself but so condescending uh you know so absolutely sure of american exceptionalism uh and his own exceptionalism and frankly no one else come is is worth you know spending time reflecting on and so i find you know i found some of his um uh, statements uh you know quite challenging unlock american energy drill frack burn coal embrace nuclear energy put people back to work by no longer paying them more money to stay at home stabilize the u.s dollar itself and rescind a majority of those unconstitutional federal regulations that are hampering our economy that is how we unleash american exceptionalism and that's not a democratic vision or a republican vision that is an american vision that we embrace economic growth and capitalism is still the best system known to man to lift us up from poverty and we should not apologize for it that's what it means to be an american new zealanders would i think a lot most if not all new zealanders would struggle with his transgenderism is a mental health disorder but uh you know uh, you've got um DeSantis, um Haley and Ramaswamy still still in the mix. Uh, you've you've said before, Elizabeth, that you think Ramaswamy is um, uh, genuinely looking at this. He is a he's a classic example of someone who's playing a long game. Um, maybe a vice president ticket, maybe standing again in uh, four years' time. Yeah, he doesn't. He you know, there's been headlines calling him Trump Jr. And he's definitely appealing to what's called the MAGA base, I think, which is the Make America Great Again, which is the movement that's almost overtaken Trump in terms of Trumpism. Um, and the, the, his 10 truths that he espouses, pretty much all of them, like you say, uh, to a New Zealand audience are just extraordinary. Like um, everyone, of course, is allowed to have a personal religious view, but generally in New Zealand, unless you're a member of a religious party, it doesn't come up. And it no. is that, it's a personal view, but it's it's top of his list, God is real. And although he's a practicing Hindu, it appeals to a lot of the um, evangelical Christians because he's unshakable in his faith. And so that's, um, yeah, it, 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 and he's he's extremely wealthy, so he can keep doing this, and he's young enough yes. that he can keep doing it, and he can 
sort of um, trade off that same uh, mantra that Trump used about being a political outsider, therefore I'm going to shake up the system. He wants to close down many branches of the federal government. He wants to shut down the FBI, dissolve the Department of Education, dissolve the um, Inland Revenue Service, get rid of them completely, take a lot of these senior roles that are public, as we would call them, public servant roles, and make them political appointees. There's already thousands of them, but he wants to make them even more. So it is just mm. a extraordinary thing that he can, he can, he's currently sitting at around 7% of Republican voters. So there he's got, he's got strong support. And he's had the biggest leap since he declared his campaign when no one had heard of him before. So yeah, interesting chap. Uh, at this, even if he drops out of the race soon or doesn't become Trump's um, vice presidential nominee, it's not going to be the last we've heard of him. No, I think uh, well said. One of the things that does strike me when I listen to uh, particularly the Republicans um, have their debates is this strong tension between uh, federalism uh, and the role of the federal government. Um, you know, the government of, you know, uh, based out of Washington, D.C., that, you know, provides federal support and programs and funding across all the states uh, and um, um, devolution to the states. And that tension is so clear. And, you know, I think it is something worth um, re just reflecting on as New Zealanders that, you know, the Republicans, by and large, want small, um, small government uh, and states at an individual level, like North Dakota and South Dakota and California, those governors and those legislators and those communities to make decisions um, uh, on everything from education through to moral issues. Um, there's, a, there's an understanding that defence in particular needs to be driven by the centre. That needs to be more of a federally led and funded exercise. But pretty much everything else, um, uh, a lot of Republicans say, look, the government's way too bloated, way too heavy. Let the individual states prioritise these activities as opposed to uh, the federal government. And, um, you know, that's that's been a long um, strain of um, internal debate in America for, you know, 100 years. Yeah, it goes back to right when America, before it was even founded as a country, you know, it was a series of independent colonies. And so, um, and then when the, when America was formed after the American Revolution, the tension was already there. How do you take these independent colonies that are all quite separate from each other? People were already had, having different accents, different ways of dressing, um, different economies. And how do you meld them together into one country that gradually over time expanded and expanded and expanded as the states, more states were added to the, to the union? Um, the argument over who gets, yes. to, who gets to decide things, uh, the federal government or the individual states, was the cause of the Civil War. Slavery was the catalyst issue but that's what it came down to is who gets to decide the states or or the or the federal government and it's it's continued to this day and it shapes all of american politics um and that's still why we have and we'll explore it in later episodes why we have the electoral college why the um primaries and caucuses are set up the way they are it's just a tension that's somewhat in in countries of that are like a commonwealth like australia but we, we just don't experience it in New Zealand. You can't imagine the regions or the provinces in New Zealand, North Otago, where I live, 
having this kind of saying, you know, we shouldn't have an education department in yes. Wellington. Uh, and certainly in the last hundred years, I think the great tension point, which still lives on, I think, in modern politics, was uh, the Republicans were in power uh, when the Great mm -hmm. Depression hit. Uh, and their natural inclination was to, uh, you know, to uh, tighten the federal response because the, you know, essentially revenue wasn't coming in and the country was becoming, uh, you know, fiscally under pressure. Uh, and that president, President Hoover, was then thumped by a famous president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who won four consecutive terms. And we can talk about that in a future episode. But what he did was massively expand the federal role, uh, federal government's role in United States society. And it got further expanded 30 years later with uh, um, uh, Lyndon Johnson. Really, the first president to push back against that was the equally famous Ronald Reagan, uh, who uh, is seen as the beacon of light uh, in uh, American Republican circles, because he was a, a um, politician and president who famously said the problem with America is is government. Uh, it's something along the lines of the scariest thing that can happen to someone is if, if someone from the US federal government shows up on your door and says, I'm here to help. Exactly. And and so sort of understanding that huge tension between, you know, Biden, who will campaign on the investment that um, uh, and the laws that he has passed to pump billions, trillions of dollars into the US economy, uh, borrowed most of it, uh, but keeping people uh, on their feet. Chris Christie, uh, you know, he spoke about uh, the level of debt, you know, $7 trillion increase of debt under Trump, and Biden has added a further $5 trillion. I mean, $12 trillion worth of debt, uh, and hence that hangs over um, uh, the uh, Republican um, uh, field as to how best do you deal with that. Uh, and of course, they will say less government is the answer. Mm, which I guess is why the gov former governors or current governor in DeSantis's case um, uh, are saying, I, I've succeeded in my state. I've done so well, therefore I can be trusted um, to do it again at the national level. Yes. And, uh, you know, it has, I think, you know, has some resonance. That's why we give DeSantis the win uh, and mm. Nikki Haley uh, the runner-up medal. Yeah, agreed. Um, having a look at the um, polling, national polling averages um, prior to and after the debate, um, they haven't really changed. Uh, Haley went up, I think, half a percentage point. She's now at 7%, whereas she was at 6 point something. Um, Ramaswamy's gone down one, so I think they've just swapped their that one percent share, but the rest have all stayed the same. And Trump is still well ahead at fifty five percent. Stan um, uh, shared with us last um, week it, all these attacks on Trump just seem to lift his profile and electability, as opposed to the opposite. Remarkable. And he just this week, the Trump Organization um, found guilty of fraud in New York. So one more. One more in a long list of legal woes for Trump. Uh, so I guess it's time for um, our special segment. Yes, past glory. And today you've selected a president. I don't know if it was at random or you picked their favourite or uh, someone that's a bit more infamous, but go for it. Who are we, who are we profiling today? 
Well, I thought we'd profile um, uh, a Mr. Grover Cleveland. Another great name. Another great name. Grover, Grover Cleveland. Uh, yeah, well, his first name was Stephen, but his middle name was Grover, and Grover he was known as. So um, uh, he was born in 1837. Uh, his remarkable uh, claim to fame was that he is the only president to have been elected twice, but not in consecutive terms. So he won, he won in 1884 uh, and uh, became the 22nd president. Uh, he stood again for his second term in 1888 uh, and lost. He lost to Benjamin Harrison, who uh, became the 23rd president. Uh, and then he stood for a third time uh, and in 1892 and won. And uh, it won't take many uh, of our listeners too much to understand why I've chosen uh, this individual is uh, Donald J. Trump is trying to be the second president uh, in history to do exactly the same thing, which is win one election, lose the next and then stand for a third time, and uh, no doubt Trump is very keen on winning. A couple of challenge, challenges for Trump uh, uh, in, in the comparison here. Uh, firstly, Grover uh, Cleveland won the popular vote in each of the three elections. So um, he was a popular uh, president. He won the popular mm. vote uh, for that second election, but lost just on the Electoral College and stood again and uh, won. And I don't think anyone would be suggesting that Trump would uh, win the popular vote. He lost the popular vote in 2016 when he won the first time. He lost it again in 2020. Although, uh, you know, as Stan Barnes said last week, it was still the second highest vote ever recorded uh, for an American politician in the history of the country. Now, um, I don't want uh, people to take this the wrong way, but the other interesting thing was that... Um, his wife uh, was a 22-year-old, uh, and he was sort of, um, frankly, pushing my age. And they are the last couple to have got married in the White House as when you know as president. So the last president ever to get married uh, was um, uh, Grover Cleveland. And one other last little bit: um, Cleveland um, uh, was one of only two. Uh, Democrats, the other being Woodrow Wilson, uh, that um, was elected from the 1860s through to uh, FDR won in 1933. So over a 70-year period, only two Democrats got elected. Uh, one was Woodrow Wilson uh, and the other um, Grover Cleveland, who is our uh, president uh, of the week. Excellent. Um, do a shout out to another former president. Happy birthday to Jimmy Carter, the 39th president. Today is his 99th birthday. Um, he was president from 1977 to 1981, um, was thoroughly trounced in 1981, and there wasn't another Democrat elected until Bill Clinton. But happy birthday, Jimmy Carter. 99 years. What an achievement. Yeah, and quite a remarkable man. I think um, uh, most... Uh, you know, academics and, and political scholars would say, if not all of them, that um, he has achieved more as a post-presidential statesman uh, than he achieved in the four years that he was president. Of course, he was 
most famously uh, acknowledged for the uh, Middle East Peace Accord, badly achieved when he was president, but he also oversaw massive decline in the US economy, runaway inflation, runaway unemployment. Uh, and, um, you know, he was in some ways a little unlucky in terms of the convergence of that and then came up against Ronald Reagan. And as you say, I think it was 48 states to two. It was it was an absolute trouncing, but quite a lovely man and someone that has a deep amount of respect from both sides of the political um, uh, battlefield. And in America, having respect from the other side of the political battlefield is a rare thing indeed. Certainly is. Certainly is. Well, that, I think that ends our discussion on um, the second uh, Republican debate. Uh, our next episode, we are going to have an exciting guest um, to provide us with their perspective on a range of issues. Um, we're not going to divulge who that is. but no, um, we're not going to let the cat out of the bag yet. It's a teaser. Right. It's a teaser. <laughs> yeah, it'll be really looking forward to it. It's going to be quite a, uh, quite a session. But again. Really looking forward to our next podcast. Um, thanks, Elizabeth, for your time. Thoroughly enjoyed de- debating the debate. Uh, and uh, ha- until we meet again, uh, uh, be safe out there, Todd Muller. And from me, Elizabeth Soul, in a very windy North Otago, Matewa. What's the Story? Old Glory is written, produced and edited by Elizabeth Soule and Todd Muller for Old Glory Casting. Our cover art is by Caitlin at Studio Naylor. Our theme music is Shootout at Sundown by Del Boney. You can send us your questions to oldglorypod at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Threads, Instagram and the platform formerly known as Twitter.